0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, hope you all had a wonderful holiday. Over the next few weeks, we'll be running back the clock with our second annual AI Rewind series. Joined by a few friends of the show, we'll be reviewing the papers, tools, use cases, and other developments that made a splash in 2019 in key fields like machine learning, deep learning, NLP, computer vision, reinforcement learning, and ethical AI. Be sure to follow along with the series at twimbleai.com slash rewind19. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this series, including anything we might have missed. Send me your feedback or favorite papers via Twitter, where I'm at Sam Charrington, or via a comment on the show notes page you can find at twimbleai.com. Happy New Year. Let's get into the show. All right, everyone, welcome to Twimble's AI Rewind 2019, where I check in with friends of the show to hear from them on their favorite papers, perspective, thoughts, reflections on the year 2019 in their area of work and research. I've got the pleasure of speaking with Zach Lipton, Zach is a jointly appointed professor in the Tepper School of Business and the Machine Learning Department at CMU, where he's also affiliated with the Heinz School of Public Policy. Zach was my guest in July, where we talked about fairwashing and the folly of ML solutionism. I encourage you to check out that show if you're not already familiar with Zach and his background. Zach, welcome back to the TwiML AI podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. So I'm really looking forward to digging into uh, some of the papers that you identified for us to walk through. But before we do that, I'd love to, you know, just start with your general sense of 2019 and you know what it meant for you, uh, or what you think it means for us, kind of for machine learning in general.
1: You know, I, I think that we've been for the last few years kind of in this just mad dash to sort of just catch up with what's changed following, I think, 2010 to 2012 disruption in terms of the kind of like new set of tools that were made available by kind of line of successful works that got deep learning actually working. And so the the metaphor I settled on at at NeurIPS is it's sort of like the task of doing research is kind of like wandering around in the dark, like swinging around for uh, like a piñata And uh, somebody smashed it open in 2012 and uh, just suddenly became really easy to do research. Like It was really easy to collect candy because there was a bunch of it sitting on the ground. And I think people have just been trying to pick all the low hanging fruit. 2013, uh, you could get really smashing successful papers just by saying we we played with a number of layers in the neural network. And the results to be gotten by doing that were sufficiently compelling that, you know, it didn't matter how much sort of intellectual content there was. I think, you know, over the, over the last few years, it's gotten a little bit more refined and it's, it's taken a bit more work to, to make an interesting paper. But I think right now, more than at any other point, I think what you're starting to find is people just kind of coming up against the limitations of the, the general paradigm of like we collected a big data set. You know, we trained it on one partition. We evaluated on the holdouts that we kind of saw how we did. And, you know, you can come up with a whole bunch of sophisticated tools to sort of either analyze that process or to try to sort of improve its efficiency a little bit. But there's a fundamental gap, I think, between sort of where people sort of got in their dreams about what they thought this technology would could go and sort of like what we actually can achieve with it. So I think what you're really seeing now in 2019 is, is people starting to take stock of the limitations of the current setup and the current paradigm. And I think a lot of the creative people are starting to think more seriously about going beyond just doing supervised learning and thinking really seriously, whether it's about causal inference or robustness under domain adaptation, or starting to think more seriously about the economic aspects of if you're deploying systems to make decisions, then you're, you're interacting in an environment with other agents who are also going to update their behavior in response to whatever it is that you changed. And I think that that this is kind of what's going on right now is that the sort of like rocket fuel from deep learning is starting to, in my eyes, I think it's starting to run out. But I think the hope is that people are starting to get ambitious again and starting to get ambitious, not just about scale, but sort of about the kinds of problems that they take on.
0: Mm. Yeah, when I think back on this time of year, a couple of years ago, post NeurIPS. A lot of people were talking about Ali Rahimi's kind of call for increased rigor in deep learning. Strikes me that that's kind of somewhat related to what you're describing and what we're seeing now. But what I'm hearing you saying is less about kind of this shift to really digging into trying to find rigor, but more looking elsewhere, incorporating other ideas. I'm hearing a ton about causality as well coming up in conversations. Do you, you know, are those related kind of themes, do you think?
1: I think it's an important distinction to be made between doing science in a rigorous fashion and what are the set of scientific questions that you're working on. And I think that this sort of big discussion that started after Ali's talk about sort of doing this work more carefully is I think very important and and I've participated in that discussion a bit. I think also like many people inspired by Ali's call to attention in 2017, but I think that's a sort of separate question from this other question about the, the set of problems that we start looking to. Like you could be very rigorous, but still just focus entirely on this sort of train test mode of machine learning. And that's a little bit different from like, you could become rigorous without leaving that world, right? You could just do, there's enough, there's enough questions to probably still keep a large number of researchers working for a lifetime just about generalization from finite samples to some some distribution. But there's a different question about doing work that addresses qualitatively sort of broader sets of questions. I think causality offers that, right? Which is, it's not just about doing work rigorously. It's sort of an orthogonal consideration, which is what, what are the categories of questions that you can answer?
0: And so you've identified some papers that were particularly meaningful for you in 2019 let's jump into let's jump into those where would you like to start
1: yeah so i tried to include papers that or groups of papers that that sort of capture multiple aspects of this Papers, paper sort of doing the old thing and interesting way paper is doing um something new i guess to start off i thought Two really interesting papers, one of them was 2018, I guess, but we could bundle it with a more recent one, so don't hold that against me. Are these papers from uh, Ben Recht and Ludwig Schmidt and Becca Roloffs called Do uh, CIFAR 10 Classifiers Generalize to CIFAR 10? And Do ImageNet Classifiers Generalize to ImageNet? And in both cases, these were basically like taking a hard look at this. We've had a whole community that part of how we put so many people to use is that we've uh, really embraced this uh, leaderboard and benchmark way of evaluating research, or at least empirical research. And we've been able to organize a large community around doing this work because we had these objective benchmarks. And they're kind of asking this critical question of. Well, after 10 million different researchers have uh, trained their models on the CIFAR training set and evaluated on the, the, the same exact CIFAR holdout set, are, are we actually getting sort of like faithful sense of, of how these models generalize or or are we just overfitting that particular holdout set? Basically, have we tapped out the, the, the capacity of that holdout set to tell us anything interesting about which models are better than which other ones. And so they did in both cases, they undertook this really incredibly laborious effort to follow to the T, to the extent possible, you know, in a good faith effort to create new holdout sets for both both data sets. And to basically say, okay, if, uh, if instead of having 50,000 train images and 10,000 holdout images, if now suddenly in 2019, an additional independent sample, of you know, 10,000 holdout images fell out of the sky, how well would all these models uh, that have been basically all fit in the same kind of rat race, of, of fitting against the same whole asset. So how well would they generalize to this sort of new, fresh data, ostensibly from the same distribution?
0: And so a big part of the effort that went into these papers, it sounds like, was curating this new data set that, to the best of their ability, they demonstrated met, you know, felt more in
1: line with the, the distributions of the, the popular data sets? Right. So, so in both cases, there isn't actually an additional 10,000 CIFAR images sitting around. Or there aren't also an additional however many ImageNet images sitting around. So they actually had to go and sort of read the papers and say exactly what procedures did they follow to create this data set. Right? So in the case of ImageNet, they first created some kind of ontology of, of nouns based on the WordNet hierarchy. And once they had these set categories, they used them to create Google image search. He's created a set of candidate images, which then were subjected to a crowdsourcing protocol that they used to basically, you know, you could do something like identify several thousand images that were likely to be Persian cats, but then you needed to show them to a crowd worker and say, is this a Persian cat? Mm -hmm. And then uh, like this was their way that they were able to create the data. So they tried to go through and this included, you know, creating sets of candidate images, going through the uh, crowdsourcing pipelines. It was really... You know, interesting work, I think, sort of on a, in a sort of qualitative sense, it, it they're sort of taking a fresh look at this data set construction process as they're going through trying to follow in the footsteps of the original data set creators. And they come up with a bunch of interesting observations, like what precisely is, you know, you get the weird questions that you wouldn't think would be so vexing, like what really is a basketball, you know, where you'll find some of these images that they, Annotators disagree on. It's because maybe it's not a real basketball, maybe it's a toy basketball. Like, is it maybe it's a picture of a basketball? What precisely is going on there, and, and how ought the thing to be categorized? But then the the sort of key result, right, is that besides the sort of really interesting asides about how the data set were collected, um, some of which I believe are in the papers, and a number in some really nice talks that the authors have given along the way. I know Ben Recht gave a nice talk about this work at the Simon's Institute last summer. Is that then what they do is they evaluate basically our current leaderboard, right? They take all these great models that are sort of the state of the art classifiers for these different data sets that you know have some kind of ranking among them, and they evaluate them all on the new the new CIFAR test set, right, and on the new ImageNet test set. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about it is that basically the models all perform. So here's here's like the uh, like don't get too excited or too angry or whatever, the, the first step is that the models all perform worse, mm-hmm. right? And uh, because of that, there's something, you know, it's this is sort of like usual crowd on Twitter. Um, like, I could be critical on Twitter, but i like to like let the evidence say, you know, what it says and not, <laughs> you know, <there> was the, <laughs> usual, the usual like hater crowd on Twitter was like, see, like I told you, deep learning doesn't work and sort of interpreted it that way. Like, this is like a damning result about deep learning. Mm-hmm. But actually, this was a really positive result. And that's because I didn't the The other side of the result was that it's not yes, all the models did worse, but they were still arranged sort of in the same order. So basically, hmm. like the best model was a certain amount better than you know the fifth best model, and that was also true on the new data, right? Yeah. So yeah. what what it sort of showed was that like if you think of the leaderboard as being this like step of like incremental progress towards like ever better models that the models that we thought were better because they did better on the CIFAR, like the actual CIFAR holdout set, actually were better on the new CIFAR holdout, on, on the, the fresh CIFAR data, or on the fresh ImageNet data. It's just that they were the entire benchmark, like all the models in the benchmark sort of across the board were a bit worse, but in the same order. So the better models really were better. And we, we kind of talk about this
0: informally as the industry overfitting on ImageNet, the industry overfitting on these kind of standardized data sets, and that this paper is is demonstrating is that perhaps that's true, but at least there's still some
1: order here. are right, this, this stuff is really complicated. Because, <laughs> because like, and I think the general problem is that basically we have one way of talking about generalization normally in supervised learning, which is from a finite sample to the, the underlying distribution. And then when people started saying like, well, what about on some different distribution? Does it generalize So we start overloading the word generalize in different ways. Yeah. And so that actually, that part of the story also comes in here, which is why this is interesting. The question is then, okay, all the, the models are, appear in the same order, which means basically, if nothing else, it means we didn't scorch the test set to the point that we got no value out of continuing to do this leaderboard chasing, right? Right. But then the question is, why did we do worse on the fresh data? And there's two possible explanations, right? One possible explanation is that, well, we sort of are overfitting the, the ImageNet holdout set, but this is having sort of it somehow like an equal effect on all the models that they all deteriorate by the same amount or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the other one, which I believe the authors seem to believe is the most likely explanation, and we've done some experiments that suggest that it's plausible. The other explanation is that the reason why they do worse is because they're not actually CIFAR data and they're not actually ImageNet data. So basically, like despite the author's very best effort and very best like intention to in every way, fate, like like you couldn't expect, you couldn't hope for a better better behaved deployment scenario, right? Like imagine that you trained on some data and then uh, you go like this is from like whatever your business is and you go to deployment time. And basically at deployment time, what you do is you face a team of academic researchers, an absolute best faith effort to in every single way, create data that statistically is identical to the data you saw during training. Like you can never hope for this in a real world scenario, right? Like this is actually, of all the ways you can go out of domain, this is the most friendly, right? Someone really (laughs) trying hard, an extremely competent person, a team of PhDs who want nothing more than to like, make this a valid scientific experiment, do everything possible to make it so that this is iid like true holdout data and still despite their best efforts the distribution of the data is slightly different because it's it's a few years later so maybe photographs look slightly different maybe compression algorithms using cameras that then get logged in image search or whatever slightly different somehow you're getting you're getting new images in that that just are slightly different in distribution and that's enough to make your classifiers say seven percent worse, eight percent worse, or something like that i forget the exact number yeah so that's, I think, the interesting thing is that like there's all these different notions of generalization here. One is that it seems that they actually, like the, the benchmarks, for whatever reason, like this process where the only way that we're squeezing juice out of a holding set is changing our neural network architectures and hyperparameters doesn't leak as much information as might fear. The models do generalize well. The benchmark, like leaderboard chasing, kind of works better than we have any right to hope it would. And at the same time, also, we sort of see how in the context of these experiments, how brittle our classifiers are to distribution shift. So I think the fact that all this is going on in these papers, and, and, and I have a fondness for this kind of paper, that they're not introducing a new model, they're not claiming a new leaderboard result, what they're asking is a, is a scientific question. And I think doing that precise kind of like hard work experiment to, to kind of produce that knowledge. And, and that whole story kind of comes out here. Are
0: there other papers that come to mind that took similar approaches this year?
1: There are a few different papers that have various different aspects. I think sometimes this this, this is unique in that it's sort of saying, do these models generalize to the very same distributions that they were trained on? There are also a lot of papers that kind of looked at various ways of saying, basically, these models were trained on some data set that was meant to sort of capture some kind of real world task, or, you know, like you had some kind of idea of the competence we thought you were evaluating. And a lot of papers are more like, is performance on this data set really indicating that competence, like as, as you might hope it would. Um, and there were a number of these over the last year and a half or so. So I had a student, Kaushik, we had a paper at EMNLP last year that basically was said something like, how much reading does reading comprehension require? And so we looked at these reading comprehension data sets and we found that essentially in reading comprehension, you're given a question and a passage and you have to produce an answer. And so presumably producing the answer correctly if it's really testing reading comprehension it should require that you've actually read the question and should require that you've actually read the passage mm-hmm. otherwise it's hard to claim that the, what the model is doing is question answer this passage based question answering right if it doesn't actually look at the passage or if you can't be sure that it actually looked at the passage or if you can't actually be sure that it read the question we had a paper that basically just said hey how come nobody's run this baseline on all these data just training the exact same models, but looking only at the passage and not the question, just get a baseline performance or just looking only at the question and looking at a randomized passage. And so when we did that, it turned out that you can match a lot of the best results reported in the literature, either not looking at the question or not looking at the passage. So it's, mm-hmm. it's something about, it's not exactly the same, but it's a similar spirit. And then it's sort of saying what, you know, asking a, a question about the, the uh, trying to ask a sort of fundamental question about this data or another um Example was, uh, there, were, there was, uh, I think it was Poliac at a paper that did a similar thing with natural language inference. This is a task where basically you have two sentences, the so similar kind of set. You have two sentences. One is called a, a, a premise and the other is called a hypothesis. And these could be in a relationship to each other, which is either uh, entailment, contradiction, or like a neutral posture. So it's a three-way classification problem. And so the the trick is to sort of read the two sentences and to deduce like which one of the three uh, best describes the relationship of these sentences to each other. And they basically found that if you just the way these data sets had been created for that task, you could often get the same performance as state of the art models just by only looking at the hypothesis and ignoring the premise. So, you know, someone might have thought that what they solved was this task of entailment, but what they really did was. Made a sentence classifier. Yeah, they made a sentence classifier. And right. it turned out there were some clues, like the hypothesis tended to have like negation words on it when it was a contradiction or something like that. Something, so this kind of gets that high level thing that we're talking about of like beyond supervised learning of, of hey, from, from a pure supervised learning standpoint, what's wrong with what the classifier is doing? There's nothing wrong with it, right? It's getting good predictive performance. The problem is that What we want is something a little bit more than that. We want something that's going to perform well in other environments. But we know we don't know how to, you know, we're still very immature about how to incorporate that into our kind of learning setup. Right. So most of what people know how to do is to say, here's representative data, fit a model, and and everything that we know, everything that we have a right to expect about the model is that it'll do well on new data from the same distribution. And now we revealed that actually what we really wanted or what it really takes to do interesting things in the real world is is something that, that other notion of generalization to different data sets to, to different environments.
0: Yeah. Speaking of beyond supervised learning, the next paper that you identified is the, the BERT paper. Technically, I think we first saw that one late 2018, but we certainly came to understand it a lot more
1: in 2019. Right. So I think you know, if we have our different pools of uh, things going on, people trying to get beyond the current paradigm and sort of counter argument that there's a lot of juice yet to be squeezed, maybe BERT's actually that latter category. Mm-hmm. Uh, BERT is basically the, the idea more, you know, the, the highest level idea is just is basically semi supervised learning, right? And, and, and uh, the, one of semi supervised learning and machine learning, right, is the approach where you say, I have lots of unlabeled data. A small amount of labeled data, how can I make magic out of that? Right? How can I, how can I basically the, the baseline would be I only have labeled data, like ignore the unlabeled data and just train a classifier using the labeled data, right? Ignore right. the unlabeled data. So the question is what, what can I do with that unlabeled data? And deep learning gives you a nice kind of answer to it, like with a lot of things, which is well, use the unlabeled data to learn the representation. Mm-hmm. The earliest forms of this that I saw were, I think, around 20. Fifteen or so, I think quackley and Andrew Dye had a paper that was doing this. I'm, I bet you there are papers that predated. That's the one that I remember, where they they were doing stuff like just train a language model on a bunch of data and then fine tune the language model to um, make predictions on your downstream classification task. Now the models they were using weren't that big. They weren't using tens of TPUs. They were using, you know probably they were still probably I don't even know if TensorFlow was out, they might have written their code in Viano like I was at the time. And and I don't think they were using an especially enormous data set or whatever. But like, you know, that key idea has been there for a while. We've talked about, you know, training auto encoders, fine tuning to, you know, supervised tasks here that the, the idea is basically predict the next word. And then uh, Elmo came out, basically 2018. It's basically the same exact idea but there's a slight wrinkles, the wrinkles are all in the details, right? Like they say, we train a forward language model from left to right, uh, a backwards language model from right to left. You concatenate them, and then you take some mixture of their representations. But the qualitative idea is train a giant language model on more data, play around with some, some variants, but that are really not conceptually different. They're just kind of you know different levers, different knobs to turn, and, and basically see what could do the best performance on, on a number of downstream tasks. And, and And Elmo was this breakthrough moment in that whether or not you found it conceptually interesting every single uh like virtually every single nlp task experienced some significant bump in accuracy and those moments are not so common right where you just say oh there's a new state of the art for every single task effective tomorrow and so bert it was it was uh, elmo didn't have that much time in the sun before the the muppet meme uh took off and bert um <laughs> which i think to, ha, ha, has sort of stayed now it's been there have been enough variations on BERT, but not enough that anybody's willing to, uh, you know, this is the same thing happens with image right? So, like, there's been slight changes on re- Resnets or whatever, but for the most part, everyone still uses Resnets now, four years later. Yeah. BERT, I think, was this moment where, you know, they made a few more modifications. One key modification was that they used transformers instead of uh, LSDMs, like in Elmo. Another big change is that for their modeling objective, instead of saying, that what they're going to do is uh, like auto regress from left to right and just try to predict the next word given all the previous ones. They do this sort of fill in the blank type objective where they mask out certain words and then try to predict which words were masked out. But Bert gave this absolutely massive boost to sort of after after that had already happened shortly before sort of did it again across the board. And at this point, you basically cannot publish a paper in natural language processing without building on top of it. You know The question that then arises is sort of what is the... There's sort of two perspectives. One is to say, if you want to do interesting work in this field, you have to go to Google and get a TPU farm. And, and this is what you have to do to 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 move the state of the art. The other way to think about it is to say that that's no longer the interesting part, that the architecture is sort of something that someone will come out with. Uh, there's Bert, now there's Roberta, someone will come out with... Yeah, I think they've already come out with every other Muppet, but you know... right. <laughs> So don't, don't, someone will come up with something to do creative research. Do you say that that is the creative research? Do you say, hey, that is the tool upon which anything that I want to do, that's just one part of, of, of what I do is this function fitting. And if I'm doing that for natural language, that this is the base model that I use. And someone will come up with another base model, but that, you know, on one hand, it takes this massive amount of resources to train BERT. On the other hand, it takes very few resources, comparatively few, to fine tune BERT to some downstream path. It, it's kind of opened this interesting wedge of like, we're sort of now in this position where sort of the only way you can you can do at least like leaderboard competitive NLP work is to build on top of one of these models.
0: What's next up in your list of papers?
1: Yeah. So kind of continuing this theme of going beyond the standard, just like I have some offline data, I fit a model, I evaluate how predictive it is on some holdout data, right? There's sort of a number of things that we're interested in going beyond there. One is under what settings can you uh, detect or adapt to distribution shift. Uh, the other side is I think the social component, which is you know we're, we're always talking about using machine learning. And this came up when we were talking about fairness before, right? We're always when we talk about machine learning technically, we we just use the language of prediction. I have some data and make a prediction. How accurate is it? Like the notion of accuracy assumes like a fixed reference distribution, right? Accuracy itself is a uh, is a a probabilistic statement. What what fraction of the times are we right? Assuming that there is some objective background distribution that's generating our data. But the reality is that if you then look at what people say they're doing with machine learning, like we want to build self-driving cars, we want to make your doctor an AI, we want to do whatever. All of these tasks involve not just making predictions, but actually driving some kind of decisions in some real world process. In a lot of those cases, you you can think of it like uh, like Google search, right? What happens the moment you change the Google search algorithm, right? The very instant you change the Google search algorithm, like the Reddit message boards light up and people are going to start adapting. They're gonna start chatting about strategies to take advantage of the new algorithm in some way or another, right? Mm -hmm. And so basically you're making decisions. And so our predictions are informing decisions. We usually kind of elide that step. But once you turn a prediction into a policy and you deploy it in like a real social setting where you're not the only agent, The next thing that happens is everybody else is going to start updating their behavior.
0: Which fundamentally shifts the distribution against which you're trying to make predictions.
1: Right, exactly. Like the same individual who may or may not have the same is going to start changing their behavior, right? People in aggregate are going to change their behavior, which is going to somehow manifest in the data that you see in the next round, right? I don't think there are necessarily cleanly separated rounds, but we could idealize it that way for, you know, like analytic purposes. So there are a couple of papers. I think, I think sort of two groups of people have been thinking really seriously about these kinds of problems. I just wanted to highlight their work. Is one is this Lily Hu, who's a PhD student at Harvard, I believe in like something crazy. Like I think she's like joint philosophy and applied math, but works with computer scientists, something like this. But anyway, I think she's done really fantastic work for a long time. But specifically, we has been looking at problems with this flavor, which is sort of like, oh, um, especially in the context of fairness, which is okay. You're proposing that we make predictions in this particular way, or you assign classification in this way. But then what happens in the next step, right? Well, we're always like missing the next part of the picture. Is like, okay, so then then we make those decisions. Then how do people update their behavior? How does this influence censorship or like the data that we see in the next round? And then you know, basically, what are we going to see next? And another group of people that have worked on this is uh, Moritz Hart, with and he's working on it for a long time. I think even before he joined faculty, and now as a faculty member with uh, his students Smith and Millie, among others. And so they've worked, uh, you know, with the student Lydia Lovett. Uh, Lydia Liu, they won the best paper at ICML a year ago, and this was about the delayed impacts of fair machine learning. And so the two papers that I about found interesting, which were both from this year at the Fat Star Conference. So this is the Fairness, Accountability and Transparency Conference. These were sort of two contemporary works, both called, one is called by Lily Hu, called The Disparate Effects of Strategic Manipulation, and one by Smitha, called uh, Smith Millie, called The Social Cost of Strategic Classification. But they're both addressing the setting where basically someone, all the individuals are characterized by some covariates. Then there's a firm that drives some kind of decisions by fitting some kind of classifier, which assigns people to predictions, say positive or negative, based on their covariates. But then in the very next round, basically, individuals are going to, uh, they have some power to sort of manipulate the value of their covariates. It's like a motivating example in Lily's paper um, that I think is a very good one is, Think about like uh, school admissions and people uh, notice that maybe people who get better SAT scores tend to do, uh, you know, and somehow this tends to be predictive of success in college or whatever. But if you then lean more heavily on the SAT scores or you incorporate this as a more prominent category and how you make your decisions of who to admit, the very next thing that happens is that people who have some resources, like, like as much as the college board wants you to think that these things are not manipulable, they are. And what people are going to do is go out and find a way to spend money to prepare for the test. Mm -hmm. And when they start preparing for the test, the same individuals, individuals who, you know, a a given individual by preparing really hard for the SATs doesn't necessarily become fundamentally a better student, but they do increase their test score, right? And so this is like the the key idea is that you have someone making decisions, but you have other people who in response are able to sort of invest in manipulating their, their features or their covariates to influence their prediction. So someone, right, the decision maker has to publish their model, then other people get to sort of respond to it strategically. And in both of these papers, they, they look both at this dynamic, but also in the context of fairness. So, so one way that they look at things is this context of, well, what if not everyone has access to the same resources to manipulate their features? And I think that the SAT example is a really good example of that, right, where you have people spend really exorbitant sums on test prep. I remember I had friends when I was in at Columbia, there was some service. I don't want to say what they are. Maybe it'll help my friend who works with them. <laughs> you know, there was some service. I forget what it's called. Some, some like kind of like posh, like Manhattan uh, test prep service that charged. I think the tutors made. I'm sure the tutors were getting a small slice of the cut, and they were getting like 100, 200 bucks an hour, something absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I think the requirement was you had to have a perfect SAT score to like be a tutor, so that was like part of their gimmick. But, you know, you have these, these, these services and pe- people will really spend enormous amounts of money. And then you, you create this dynamic where basically people who have lots of resources to influence their decisions will do so. People who have less will, you know, can't really compete. And kind of analyzing this dynamic of, of, of sort of what happens depending on how you make your predictions and how people adjust strategically. And they also both came up with interesting scenarios where sort of often everyone could be made worse off and like the institution making the decisions becomes better off, like in the setting of strategic manipulation, like this somehow like works against the this might have something to do with the fact that like you're sort of assuming like a monopolistic party on one end and like competitive parties on the other. Mm-hmm. But you can have these settings where basically lots of people are competing with each other to manipulate their predictions and net overall, like they're incurring some costs for doing so and are made worse off. And the institution on the other side sort of is made strictly better off. I don't know that either, you know, I think both papers are addressing a fairly idealized setting and it's not clear that they're giving you a, a tool in the algorithmic sense that you could go out and, and start analyzing, you know, directly, say like a lending decision or school admissions or not that I would endorse, you know, making those decisions based on a machine learning classifier in the first place. Right. <laughs> but I think they are giving, and I think this is true of a lot of this stuff as we start going sort of towards causality and towards thinking about economic mechanisms, Is there at least giving us, I think, a framework for thinking coherently about the problem? And I think the problem is, you know, when we don't do that work, you wind up with people pretending that these are just, that more or less we can just continue to think of these things as prediction and that, you know, just like there's some kind of really simple, trivial fix that that, that gets around this. And I think these are, you know, nice steps towards thinking coherently about these problems.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that part of the issue in the examples you described is kind of the the gap between the real world thing that you're trying to optimize and how you formulate that as a machine learning problem. Does the, the framework that they provide in their discussion help provide additional tools or ways to think
1: about that core problem formulation question? I think what it gives us at least is a way of, Stepping back and appreciating at least one component of, you yeah, know, there's this thing that is always omitted, which is like, what is our data? Like, what is the data? Where does it come from? And to some extent, you know, when the data represents individuals, the data is the data is subject to choices that they make, and some of those choices are directed specifically to to have them classified and treated in a certain way. Yeah, and, and I think just like that very sort of realization, starting to model it into starting to create sort of mathematical models of this interaction as itself, you know, the the it's a conceptual tool. You know, again, I don't think it's a practical tool. Like, I don't need to give you an algorithm and say, oh, just run this on the banking data. It'll, it'll tell you what is, you know, and in fact, you, you need to know things going into it, right? Like, you need to know what are the costs of manipulating different features, some things that might not be specified in the data, but it's a, it's at least sort of starting to cast these problems in a way that is sort of richer and, and captures these things that you know, we're, we're sort of naively ignoring. Like if nothing else, think about like what does this conceptual tool to do? We see all these people talking about like just using big data to do all kinds of whatever. Oh, if I have access to someone's Facebook likes and this and that, then I can say whatever, I can make whatever kinds of decisions based on that data. This is giving you a reason not to, right? You know, if you start thinking, if only just like the very consideration of these uh, interaction dynamics, because well, why shouldn't you use Facebook likes, well, because if somebody knows that their career and all these other sort of choices that, that are really consequential to them are being driven based on these like really easily manipulable features, they're going to start changing that behavior, right? I mean, so there's, there's multiple sort of aspects of this, right? One is just the very consideration of strategic behavior. And then the other side is the sort of fairness implications of when you're making decisions about people and then you have different groups of people with different abilities sort of disparate ability to manipulate. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like a, you create a situation where, you know, maybe uh, just rich people get whatever classification they want or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool.
0: The next paper on your list kind of returns to this theme of generalization in, in machine learning. It's the invariant risk minimization paper. Tell us why that paper made your list.
1: Yeah. So this is a paper that I, I don't know if they've hit the exact solution to these kind of family of problems, but I think was a, a really solid and interesting attempt that I think got a lot of people thinking. And basically, you know, they're, they're, there's sort of a connection between prediction out of domain, between causality, and um, some of this is sort of well known. But one aspect that sort of hasn't been folded into it is, is representation learning. So so the way that causality is linked to prediction out of domain is that you say, well, my source data came from some distribution, my target data came from a different distribution. What changed? Presumably, in some ways, that these two different distributions are related to each other, right? Otherwise, like, why should I expect that I could apply a classifier train on one to the other? Causality gives you one way of thinking about it: is like there is, you know, there was an intervention. Of some sort, something, you know, one, one variable that used to take its data in some organic way has now been intervened upon. And but otherwise, the process is the same. Mm-hmm. What this paper starts getting at is this idea of, well, thinking about predicting well on a range of environments in terms of the representation that you learn, which is an idea that came up in some earlier, more classical domain adaptation work, like from Scheib and David. But it's developed here um, and some some novel theories developed in the context of classical models, but then also some interesting experiments in the context of deep models. But the the core nugget here is this idea that uh, what is the ideal representation that you should learn? And the intuition, the, the thing that they roll with is this idea that a good representation is one such that the optimal predictor built on top of that representation should be the same for all environments. So if you've got a bunch of different environments or a family of different environments, you want to learn a representation such that the predictor that you would then fit on top of that representation would be sort of environment agnostic. And what is
0: environment in this context? Is it the the, the world that generates the
1: distribution of your input and target sets? Right. So this is, for example, like I might have, so you, you have this example of, it's you a know, classic example of like, if I see fish, they're always against the water in the background and I see something else that's always against certain background. These things are correlated, but they're also, you know, exist. I, 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 could, I could also create a data set where I'd have like the fish is not against, is you know, maybe a contrived example, but you need to get the idea where that correlation would be broken. Yeah. Right. And, and the reason why is because it is not, you know, like the, the key fundamental difference you know, there, there exists some environment where it's maybe even like anti-correlated or something like that. So that even though like if, you, if you're just doing supervised learning, you can be do very well by just using the, the water background to predict the fish. Like in the worst case, in an environment where all the fish are on land and all the, you know, zebras are in the ocean or something, then you're going to do really badly. Right. Right. And so this paper kind of simply is saying we want a
0: classifier that can perform equally well on fish, whether there's water in the background
1: or they're in an aquarium or they're mounted on a wall or whatever? Yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, we've we rounded off a lot of the, the mathematical detail, but I think <laughs> we are you know getting at the ideas. And, and, and the key idea is like the representation learning that, that you should produce this representation such that the predictor on top of that is the same across all environments. Then there's these questions of, well, how many environments do I need to see? And what kind of like under what like conditions have I actually covered adequately, you know, all the environments that I would like reasonably anticipate. And in this case, they sort of have a, in the case of linear models, have like a uh, very sort of well-developed and kind of involved theory, but sort of the question is wide open about when this makes sense and how many environments we would need to have represented in our sort of training. So so in, in their set, like your training set is you have multiple distinct environments and from each environment you have a data set they could say something that if, if each of these environments is related to each other in some kind of complicated way then you could say that you know for fitting linear models that, that we you know we, we need however so many environments in order to, to find this invariant predictor but things get a little bit more complicated when we start stepping towards you know i think the kinds of data and kinds of models that we wanna work with, which are in general not linear, which is why we care about representation learning, at least in the context of deep learning.
0: And so is the the contribution of this paper kind of a theoretical framework for these invariant risk minimization models and you know how to know if you have one, or is it something more concrete where I can go create an invariant risk minimization model given the tools of the paper?
1: the the contribution right is I think um, there's this principle for how to create a predictor. There's a set of simple environments where you could argue that uh, in a more like theoretical way that you're doing the right thing, and then a set of empirical experiments. And I believe the empirical experiments are still very toy. It's something like I think they look at something like uh, like ImageNet, SVHN images, things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh sorry, not ImageNet. Say Image. I mean like MNIST. Mm-hmm. Where, where you have some kind of distractor, like there's uh, colors is, is associated with the category, but this is not necessarily going to, you know, the degree to which color is associated with the category is changing. And obviously, you know, the correlation, the hope is that, you know, you're going to produce a model that depends less on color and then is going to do better, you know, in the test environments where, you know, those, the, the, the correspondence between color and category are, that you've come to sort of rely on uh, don't actually stand up, on holdout data. Okay. So maybe you maybe pay some price on the data sets where that is a predictive signal for not relying on it. But you produce, by producing a model that doesn't rely on color, then if you go find a world where, you know, the correspondence between color and images is completely flipped, then, you know, your model will be robust, something like that.
0: Yeah, there's another interesting feature of this paper that you pointed out that you don't see a lot of in paper. There's a bit of a Socratic dialogue in the back of the paper.
1: Yeah. You know, I think I'm just going to have to leave that to the uh, to the listener to, to read through. <laughs> there's, there's form their own opinions. It's certainly different. You're not. Uh, it's not the typical section six in a technical machine learning paper. Uh huh. Uh huh.
0: I think they maybe wanted to keep with the theme of uh, Greek since there's a lot of Greek symbols earlier in the paper.
1: Yeah. You know, the dialogue does jump the shark a bit, but. It's interesting that throughout the paper, you know, the authors and I think this suggests they 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 are thinking seriously about these problems about causality and invariance and are in dialogue a little bit more than maybe uh, you usually encounter in machine learning with the um, philosophy of science. Which is not to say that you would expect to find a, you know, a four-page-long Socratic dialogue in a modern work on philosophy of science either, but. You know, there is uh, the, the treatment of, of of the kind of like core philosophical questions is, I think, sincere and serious and, and that the authors are unusually broad in their reading, which I think, you know, in general is really nice to see. Mm-hmm.
0: So the next paper on your list is one that uh, I was excited that you included. And it's one that I've seen pop up quite a bit of late. It's the uh, your classifier is secretly an energy based model and you should treat it like one paper. Uh, what's that one about?
1: Yeah, so this is a paper um, that I just came across because uh, someone I know um, left a comment and pointed me to it. But this this paper is, was, I think, just accepted with an oral presentation at ICLR. And the key idea is basically... So, so an energy-based model, basically, is a model that assigns scores associated with each input. And these scores uh, correspond to like unnormalized probability densities. And, you know, there's a literature on discriminative models where people try to produce classifiers that do really good at assigning conditional probabilities of predicting labels given some input. Uh, There's a corresponding literature of people taking on, you have to be very careful with the word generative modeling because there's a set of tasks associated with generative modeling. that I think most of what we're doing, most of what we're calling generative modeling in the context of GANs, is not really addressing, but using it lightly in that sense of like trying to learn explicitly or implicitly, uh, you know, uh, a probability density over, over your inputs, over over your X, over your images. There's this other literature that does that, right? Including variational autoencoders, including GANs. And there have been plenty of approaches on that side that have adopted this sort of energy-based approach to uh, incorporating it either into the GAN framework or whatever. But sort of there's always this kind of tension that, Sort of, it seems that like when you train a generative model, you know, generative models are capable of performing prediction, but it seems like you never do as well as when you just train a proper discriminative model itself, right? If you want to do prediction, you know, sort of like the theme of, like, if you want to do prediction, the takeaway so far is like, you're better off just straight up training a discriminative model, not training a generative model, and then trying to trying to run it in some kind of manner to to generate predictions. And what this, this model basically says is that, it sort of just says, hey, let's just take a discriminative model, like a standard image classifier, and you can sort of interpret it. You're keeping the architecture and everything as you would for just a sort of off-the-shelf discriminative model. You are changing uh, the learning objective and how you sample from it. But the, the key idea here is to sort of say that you feed an input to a discriminative model, you can get out some logits, then you run the softmax function, it turns these logits into predictive probabilities, and uh, you actually have like an extra degree of freedom there, which is that if you were to like move all your logits up by some fixed amount or move it down by some fixed amount, you would get out the same softmax probabilities. And that's just because sort of um, all of your probabilities need to sum up to one. So uh, there's extra degree of freedom there. So it says, hey, we'll just keep the entire architecture. We'll keep all the parameters, we'll keep everything the same for your discriminative model. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna basically interpret sort of pre softmax logits as sort of unnormalized probability density. So like probability of X and Y, and then they're going to train in, uh, you know, the manner of an energy-based model, sort of they're going train with like two objectives. One is to just maximize the classification performance using like the standard cross-entropy loss. And they're also going to train using this like energy type objective to make it so that basically the sum of the pre-softmax logits has like sort of high energy for in-distribution data and hopefully, you know, low energy for out-of-distribution data. And what, what ends up being really interesting about this is that in this tension between discriminative and generative models, you find basically like usually if you train a generative model, you do good at the things that you want the generative model to do, you do bad at things, uh, you do the bad at prediction even when you try to, you know, leverage your generative model to make predictions and vice versa. Um, when there's ways of using a discriminative model, as a generative model, they're usually not as good as if you just did, uh, you know, use the more familiar, I mean, I'm abusing the word generative model here, but. Like GANs or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so the end result here, which, you know, if this stands up, I think is super exciting, is that they basically have a single model that they have trained. And this model ends up being good at classification. It also, um, basically, you can now sample from it by basically doing something uh, called stochastic gradient, the Langevin dynamics. And so you basically you have some initialization at the input and you take uh, gradient steps over the energy function with some amount of noise injected. And this is sort of equivalent to like sort of sampling if you run it for a long time. And so there's other people out there that are much better experts than I am about uh, Langevin dynamics. But the the interesting thing is that if you sample from this thing, the, the samples that, you, that come out end up doing better or like as well or better on the generative model type objectives as a lot of generative models out there. The model does, you know, still does really good as a discriminative model. And then it turns out that the uh, probabilities that you get out of this model tend to be uh, pretty well calibrated, whereas in general, a uh, neural network probabilities that, uh, you know, the conditional probabilities assigned to classes tend to be way overconfident. The predicted probability of like, you know, whichever class, you know, is the argmax or the softmax tends to be overconfident. Mm-hmm. And then this model also turns out that these, these scores, these unnormalized densities that basically give higher probability to, you know, things that, you know, you think are high density, data and lower, lower unnormalized probabilities, things that are you know, low-density data, turn out to be good on a range of empirical benchmarks for detecting shifts like out of distribution. And then finally, it seems that the models that they get out of it also do a strangely good job as evaluated against. They do slightly worse than uh, the state-of-the-art for uh, adversarial robustness. And so it's a kind of interesting and exciting here. Is hey, this is a model that's doing well for discriminative modeling. It's getting generative performance that is similar to uh, GANs, at least by determined by I think like Fréchet inception distance or one of those, or inception similarity, one of those you know metrics that they use. It's doing well in calibration, which I'm a little bit fuzzier on why that should be, um, and whether that that there is any principle that this cal- classifier should be calibrated. But perhaps interesting that it. Tends to be at least empirically on the data sets that they've looked at. It's getting adversarial robustness, and it's useful for out-of-distribution shift detection. So there is something kind of interesting here, um, and it'll be really interesting to see over the next few months. Do does it turn out that basically, you know, there's a long history of someone sort of coming up with a new kind of model that appears to be adversarially robust, but that's just because there's some, you know, as of yet, there's some smart way to attack it that they hadn't considered because they're proposing the new model. We hadn't set the adversaries against it yet. Right. The adversaries being the graduates. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, there is something interesting here. And I think that it also tapped into maybe a broader turn in the literature. So there's these other papers by Alex Madre's group at MIT, where they've shown things that adversarially robust models have all kinds of properties um, that you would normally associate with GANs or like, you know, basically models performing this uh, but we don't want to use the abuse the word generative anymore because a like synthesis type class, right? So you could do um, infilling with an adversarially robust model, or you could generate uh, images, or when you do a targeted adversarial attack to turn an image from one class to another. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you take a picture of a kitten and you try to turn it into a picture of a of a banana, a
0: picture that's classified as a banana.
1: Right. Exactly. Right. If you do this with a vanilla classifier. Uh, what you get is a picture that looks like a slightly noisy kitten that's misclassified as a banana. Mm -hmm. If you do with the adversarially robust model, you update the pixels of a kitten to look like banana. So instead it looks to the classifier like a banana. The weird thing is that it actually makes it look like a banana. Mm. So like the weird thing is, is, is sort of of all the things that could have made it look like it could have made it just look like something so bizarre that it was not an image. In which case like we don't have any right to expect the model will classify it as a banana or is it not banana right it could have just made it look like total garbage and that would sort of it's not clear why the adversarial objective would have a problem with that as long as it's sufficiently different from the input image right as long as it doesn't look like a cat the weird thing is that it ends up making it actually look visually like a kitten and so there's already this evidence that like some of these things that we maybe didn't have any good reason to believe are related like robustness and this sort of like image synthesis capability are actually related to each other. in in a way that still right now, I think it's floating around at the level of intuition, but it'll be interesting to see if we can kind of like unify why these tasks are related to each other vis-a-vis, you know, maybe the dynamics of neural network training. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, cool. So uh, you've also got a couple of papers or, or things that you're, group has been working on uh since we last spoke what do you have going there
1: so one paper that i'm really excited about just got accepted at uh iclr 2020 congrats thanks um so this is work with my student Kaushik, and basically the, the idea we talked a little bit earlier about this concern in natural language processing about the models you know it, it's okay maybe it's accurate but is it is it really like learning the the right correlations, right? And the problem is that it's not so well-defined, like what makes a correlation like, like, you know, people are starting to say like, is it picking, is it really learning the task or is it learning superficial correlations or bad correlations or spurious ones? The problem is those words don't have like a clear formal meaning within statistical learning. Like if you've got two sets of features and they're both associated with the output, what is the general principle according to which you should, your model should be relying on one versus the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so we kind of cast this problem of within sort of a causal framework, you know, we we don't use the mathematical machinery of causality, but we use this sort of thinking that the relationship here is vis-a-vis intervention. So the reason, let me give you a clear example to make this like real. So we we take a movie reviews and if you train a classifier on movie reviews, you find that the classifier puts a lot of weight, you know, just a, a linear classifier on bag of words. It puts a lot of weight, positive weight on words like fantastic, excellent, but it also puts positive weight on words like romance, which is a genre, not really a sentiment. Mm-hmm. And then if you it puts negative weight on words like terrible, but also on the word horror, which is, again, a genre, like, why can't you have a great horror movie? Or why why should the fact that it's a horror movie matter? And the reason why is because for whatever other reason, perhaps like the confounder is something like low budget, that like Hollywood romance movies tend to be better received, tend to have higher reviews, and that horror movies tend to be lower ranked, right? So you think, like why shouldn't, why shouldn't that be the case? Why shouldn't the model put weight on those? And one reason why is to say, is to formalize it be like through, the, through that, the concept of an intervention. That If I took a movie and I changed the genre, keeping everything else the same, it, it, it shouldn't change the sort of applicable label to that movie review, whether it's positive or not. Right? Even if it's correlated vis-a-vis um, this like sort of confounding, that, that actually intervening upon it shouldn't make a difference. So the key idea we had here was to use um, is that what is real, the you know, the, the the actual like substantial, the causal connection versus what is not might not even be identifiable from the observational data alone. So the key idea is to use humans in the loop to supply that information. And so what we do is we kind of flip the crowdsourcing paradigm. So instead of saying, here's a review and here's a label, or sorry, here's a review, give me the label. Instead, what we do is we say, here's a review, and here's the actual label associated with it, like positive or negative. Then below that review, we have the same exact review, like pre-populating an editable text box. And then to the right of it, we have a counterfactual label, which is like the opposite. You know, like this was a positive review, now make it negative. This was a negative review, now make it positive. And so their goal is to edit the review such that it accords with a counterfactual label, right? Mm-hmm. So that what we're basically told to say, edit the review set at the core of the counterfactual label, basically leave it in an in a internally consistent state. So don't just like edit one sentence. You basically have to edit it so that it's fully coherent. Yep. However, three, don't um, make gratuitous changes. So basically don't change any facts that don't need to change to flip the applicability of the label. And so what ends up happening is that we now for every single original image, uh, every single original review that was negative, we have a mirror image review that's positive. For every original review that's positive, we have a mirror image review that's negative. It's like, you know, evil twin. Yeah. And in these ones, what's happened is that, you know, in that original data set, horror occurred in all these negative reviews. But in the new data set, those are all positive reviews, but they all still have the genre of horror. And that's because the human knows that horror is not the thing that needs to be flipped to change the applicability of the label so they don't intervene on it. So mm. the humans are actually like communicating some information to us that wasn't even necessarily, and that's sort of an argument we make, it's not clear that that information was even identifiable from the original data set alone. But the humans by virtue of not intervening on that data have sort of revealed to us that structure. And so we see interesting things like if you basically, if you train on the original data and evaluate on the holdout set from the counterfactually revised data, you go from 90% accuracy to like 55% accuracy and vice versa if you train on the revised data, you get like 90% accuracy, but evaluate it on the original data you go down like 55% accuracy. If you train on both data sets together, so what we call the counterfactually augmented data, you end up with a model that gets like 88% accuracy on both, which is pretty good. It basically means, you know, you pay a small price for not relying on these sort of like spurious correlates, but surprisingly small. You know, you're getting like just you're just paying a couple percentage points in accuracy, and you're basically getting good performance on both the original data and the counterfactually augmented data. So so the name of the paper is learning the difference that makes a difference with counterfactually augmented data. And I think that this sort of, you know, leads us towards what I'm excited about is that I think the the conversation about these data set artifacts, spuriousness, whatever, has been a little bit derailed by a sort of failure to recognize that one, this this is not just that sort of IID ML problem. It's asking us about something beyond predictive accuracy and perhaps even beyond what's identified in the in the observational data but by soliciting this this intervened upon data where we're actually able to tease apart and so we actually see some interesting things so we can go empirically places that we can't go theoretically and one thing that we see is that if you train the model on the counterfactual augmented data not only do you do well on both but all those words that you thought should not be related like horror romance both live some like a lot of these words that just like why is that associated with sentiment yeah they actually fall out of the model so they 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 cease to become like high high coefficient features in like the linear model but then we see for both linear models lsdms BERT models if we train on the counterfactually augmented data we also do better out of domain so if we go outside movie reviews and we train those models uh, and we run evaluate those models on on a different sentiment task like yelp restaurant reviews or something like that that are not movies, and what does romance or horror mean in the context of a restaurant review? It's not clear, right? Mm-hmm. But those the the models that were trained on the counterfactually augmented data empirically generalize significantly better, not you know in the in the IID notion of generalization, but in that across domain sense that we we're talking about earlier, right? So it gives us some suggestion that there you know there's something substantial here, and you know I think the next big leap is to sort of figure out how can we just Like on one hand, I think we've learned something really interesting conceptually and we've created a data set and resource that we've released to the public that hopefully other people can do interesting things with. On the other hand, this is an extremely laborious process. So so a huge part of the work to make this possible was my student had to basically single handedly uh, wrangle a workforce of like 800 crowd workers in order to and then actually manually inspect them to make sure that all of these revisions were coherent and made sense. And that people were actually doing in the past because we're asking a lot more from them than just like check the right radio button. We're saying revise a, a paragraph of prose. Which is usually
0: hard with crowd, crowdsource, crowd workers.
1: Right. You know, but I think we learned a lot of things. One is that I think uh, you get a lot of uh, benefit from really actively monitoring the process. You get a lot of benefit from paying them well. Mm-hmm. And that there's a huge, like, really significant factor that's determined by um, the quality of the instructions that you give them. So we, we kind of agonized over that. And I think getting the instructions right and making them crystal clear was a big factor that made this um, the results better than if we had given them some harder to parse instructions.
0: All right we're getting short on time. So uh, before we move on to your predictions, you also mentioned another paper that you're excited about. Can you give us a quick summary of the fair ML from a non ideal perspective paper?
1: Sure. So this is, um, and I'm gonna ruin his name in a horrible way, such that, you know, he will never talk to me again. But this is work <laughs> with a postdoc student. Uh, he's got a Persian surname, Sina Fazelpour. So sorry, Sina for, for ruining your name. But this is work that we've done together that basically we've been looking at a lot of the work in fair machine learning, both from the sort of statistical approach and the causal approach and coming up against a certain set of frustrations. And the main set of frustrations is sort of that. And we this is sort of what we talked about last time is that what, what they're sort of missing is, is the right set of ingredients to even make a determination about what is the just thing to do. That you could very easily for a lot of these things construct two different scenarios where you could describe them both in terms of, you know, here's your covariance, here's your label, here's your prediction, and here's a sensitive feature. And, it, you know, what seems like adjusting to do is very different, you know, if it were, say, um, hiring and, uh, like, one case is why do we think that there's something different about the way you should approach incorporating demographic into hiring when you're considering, say, whites and Asian applicants versus white and black applicants in the United States? And the reason why is because that there's a very different question of justice is because in one of them, the current situation is a product of very well documented, very well understood history of discrimination and injustice. And the other case, you have a sort of overrepresentation that sort of occurs not because of discrimination, but maybe in spite of. And so that absent this coherent causal story of the data that you're addressing, and also maybe a coherent causal story of what is the impact of a proposed policy intervention that, you know, you don't really have the right ingredients to offer someone a off-the-shelf solution to, to say, oh, this is the way to be fair, to be just. So, so basically, in this context of formulating these this sort of argument about so we can't just sort of hand people tools and tell them that they are these like oh, like plug plug your classifier into this and it'll magically become fair, that, that it doesn't have the right set of inputs. Sina made a really nice connection to a lot of the literature that arose in the context of political philosophy in the context of segregation and integration. And there, it was actually were especially influenced by a work called The Imperative of Integration by a political philosopher named Elizabeth Anderson. And you see throughout this book, she, she makes this distinction really clear between the ideal and the non-ideal approach in philosophy. And basically the ideal approach sort of asserts what does the like in the most naive form of the ideal approach? You sort of like what does the perfect world look like, and you sort of identify some discrepancies between the world you live in and the ideal approach, and this is your justification. And so historically, you know, a sort of naive application of the ideal approach might be something like saying that we must have a colorblind policy for everything because in the perfect world everyone would be colorblind. And the non-ideal approach is more concerned with well, what are we don't live in a perfect world. So, what is the landscape of injustices, and, and and basically, why you know why are we in the situation we're in? Who are the agents who have a moral responsibility to do something about it? And then, what are the strategies that are actually going to be effective, given the dynamics of the kind of messed up world that we live in? And so, you know, in the context of like say uh, the, the the naive ideal approach for for a race-blind policy, the non-ideal approach would say something like, well, given we don't live in the ideal world. So given that people have... Whether or not you even believe that race is real, given that on the account of perceived race, people have been discriminated against and there are these mechanisms in place, what then is sort of your responsibility to act? And so the, I think that, you know, sort of maybe argument against this casting of like the ideal approach is that it's almost like so... Uh, it's almost so naive that like you'd say, well, maybe no one actually believes it so literally. And that actually... You know, in, in some ways, it's, you know, besides maybe like someone reaching for like a like a like a naive argument against affirmative action or something like that. But actually, in, in a lot of ways, it's actually precisely in uh, the fair machine learning approaches that we're seeing precisely like this kind of, you know, like, like each of these parodies is something that would hold in our ideal world where um, whatever is the demographic didn't matter. And the proposed approach is just latch onto one of them and then minimize the disparity.
0: So, is the idea is is this principally a, a critique of the fair ML kind of the state of the the world in fair ML, or is are, are you more trying to point to tools in that have been discovered or presented in the political philosophy world and kind of getting to non ideal approaches? and drawing analogies for FairML?
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't say so much that the purpose of the paper is to offer a critique. I think there are some sort of well-known problems with any of these individual priority metrics, but I I think it's really more to one, maybe present something of a more unifying view, and maybe most importantly, just to make a connection to a large existing body of work that I think a lot of people, you know, there, there are people in the space who are aware of, but I think a lot of people in the space are, are not. And I think this is something that maybe, you know, by by, by stepping back from the like pheromel kind of idealized classification context and looking at actually cases that have been probed, you know, really much more critically. And I think that like cases like segregation, integration offer a sort of policy context where people have really thought deeply about the problem and, and by, by reading a book like I think Anderson's imperative of integration you see sort of what, what is the the actual work that goes into making um, a coherent policy argument the fact that you know that this includes among other things a sort of an account for the disparity a sort of like normative framework that tells you who's responsible Or intervening, which is not necessarily congruent with the set of people that are responsible for the problem in the first place, that actually uh, is a pragmatic one that takes into account the best evidence for for what the actual impact of proposed interventions would be. And is it, you know, are are they actually not just beneficial in the sense of like the entries to your confusion matrix and your like idealized view of the world, but actually do they sort of lead to the kind of social change that we sort of are, are 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 seeking? I think that. Hopefully, by making this connection between this sort of previous body of work in philosophy and what's happening right now in Fairmale, I think, if anything, maybe we allow the hope is to maybe to give people an opportunity to sort of learn from sort of people's past mistakes rather than having to make them all ourselves. Got it. Got it. So maybe let's switch
0: gears and talk a little bit about your predictions for 2020, or if you dare, the next decade. <laughs> Since we're entering a, a new one.:
1: <laughs> Number one prediction, and, and I think this is already well underway, so maybe it's a conservative prediction, but I think that what we're seeing and will continue to see and will become more obvious is, uh, is a kind of great commodification that the, the technology, for all we talk about like exponential progress and technology, so I think actually, in a lot of ways, certain aspects of ML progress have started to stagnate a little bit. Because that's how things go. We don't we don't just blow up exponentially. We, we we make a little progress, we have a little bit of a rupture and then things slow down again until the next big idea. Where things are growing is sort of horizontally, is that I think we uh, it used to be you went to NeurIPS or ICML and you saw the same four companies that were basically massively represented, which was, you know, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, some Amazon, uh, some Apple maybe and uh now what you're starting to see is a lot of like boring companies showing up to nerves and sending you know and i, and I say it's not as like a put down but more like this isn't like the just the like sole province of the extremely like tech elite but that this technology i think is going to start to become boring technology in the way that like any successful technology does right mm-hmm. so i think there was a time when uh, you built the first object-oriented program and you were doing something riveting that was you know, uh, academic kind of happening. And there's a time now where basically uh, every single person building a website is building an object-oriented program. And I think that we're seeing a lot more of this, of sort of banks, of government, of just sort of all throughout the economy, uh, that there's sort of a larger sort of base of people that are sort of participating in these technologies and these jobs and it's becoming much more widely diffused. At the same time, I think you know a lot of this. There was this moment, right, where if you could train a neural network, you had uh, a route to possibly like a four hundred k a year job or something absolutely ludicrous, you know, at um, a number of companies. And I think that now, at the very top, you know, I think there's there's not as many people that could could run a research lab that could, you know, I, I think there's still there's still parts of the economy that are as hot or hotter than ever. But I think that. A lot of this just kind of can train neural network to, to do X is, is getting commodified and it's just going to, you know, be, uh, there's a lot more people could do it and uh, a lot more companies will be doing it. And I think it's going to start becoming just more kind of commonplace and obvious. I think at the same time, hand in hand with that, and this ties into the maybe like theme of the conversation is that I think that. That, that's sort of like, that's the direction I think for this established sort of just predictive models as on one hand, yeah, get boring, um, become widely diffused, um, at the same time, maybe a little bit of a stagnation in progress. On the other hand, I think a lot of the creative people are going to be pushing more and more sort of beyond the limits of just the sort of train test prediction. And I think that'll you know, one direction is people thinking more seriously about generative models. I think one direction is people thinking much more seriously about causality, people trying to come up with more expansive or ambitious ideas about robustness. So we've been sort of myopically fixated on this idea of perturbations within the L2 ball or within the L infinity ball, like for adversarial examples, but starting to get a bit more ambitious with kinds of invariances and kinds of robustness that we want to to build into models. And I think, hand in hand with causality and the papers we talked about earlier I think is also starting to ask research questions that situate these models in the context of the like wider decision-making process that they're actually part of so I think this kind of integration of machine learning and economics is is sort of going to be an exciting area and I think that's really if I have to look you know over the next five, 10 years what I think is gonna blossom I think that, that is that's sort of I can't say that I see completely the technical route or that I have all the right tools to make it blossom, but I think in terms of like what needs to in order for this technology actually to be deployed in the kinds of ways that we imagine it should be, that's the kind of research that needs to start happening. And so I think we're gonna start seeing the field kind of setting its sides a little bit a little bit wider.
0: Yeah. Do you have a sense for you, you mentioned not being able to see clearly what the the technical pieces of that, but do you have any kind of sense for what that needs to look like? Certainly some of the things we've talked about in the context of fairness, some of these fat star papers, feedback loop papers are in this vein. Is there kind of a broader way to characterize what happens when these two fields start to you know, collide more frequently?
1: I think what really needs to happen is that we're, I think where we're sort of in trouble right now is that we have the pure predictive modeling world, which is sort of conceptually impoverished, but is able to deal with really rich real world data. So it's like if we pretend all we care about is prediction, then we're like limited to a very kind of, you know, really flat set of conceptual questions we can ask, but we're able to address them concerning really rich spaces of interesting data. Then on the other hand, I think we have a much richer conceptual worlds that are offered by the language of causality, the language of economic modeling, that get in towards a much more you know, deeper and critical consideration of these, these multi-agent environments, or or even just you know, the, the causal structure of the world that are really allow us to frame like philosophically coherent questions that are much more expansive than what we could say in just sort of supervised learning business as usual. But the downside there is that we don't have tools that we can take to real data. So it's like, do we want the sort of impoverished tools that we could really take the data or do we want the really rich tools that we can just use to run thought experiments or, you know, even toy data experiments? And and I think bridging this gap. And if I, you know, if I, if I had all the answers, I, I certainly wouldn't be telling you, you know, I'd be, <laughs> be writing, be spamming the archive of like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> no, but... Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to pretend to, to know what that looks like. I, I don't think it's sufficiently like respectful to the difficulty of the task, mm-hmm. but that's, that's, that's what I try to look for right
0: now. And one of the things that I try to do coming back from NeurIPS uh, and this time of year is try to identify a few kind of key ideas or or thoughts that were notable out of that event, uh, but also kind of broadly, you know, gaining traction over the year. And a couple that come to mind for me this year were causality and uh, generative models. And they certainly came up quite a bit in our conversation today. You know, do you think similarly in terms of those those particular? Do you have others? You know, if, if if those are at the top of your list, like, why do you think
1: that is the case now? Well, I, I don't know about I think those, those two are a bit different. Like, I mean, there's other contexts in which people are talking about generative models that, that aren't, you know, the, the sort of graphical models we talk about in the context of causality, although those are our generative models. But I think the reason why they're pressing now is just because we're actually using this technology, right? So it's like we, we sort of have a technology that addresses a narrow set of concerns, that it produces sort of like artifacts that are enough to get us excited. And that's enough to get us excited about deploying the technology, but not enough to actually really address the needs of like the deployment environment. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We we basically like we, we were running this stuff in the lab forever. We have these tools that that do well at this sort of like guess the answers on the test set. And now we're deploying tools based on it. We're not actually like ready for prime time in terms of being able to address, address the needs of those real world deployment environments. So I think what's happening is people are starting to go to those stakeholders and starting to come up against the limits of like, what's wrong? Like why why it's insufficient to use a neural network? Uh, like like why, why hold out test performance isn't enough to make decisions in, in, in a medical decision-making scenario? Like why it's not enough to make clinical decisions just to have good prediction accuracy? And so I think the more people start using this technology, like those issues have to come up because they were there in the first place. We just weren't thinking seriously about it, but we sort of like put ourselves in this bind. Like I think like that, that's I think the driver is that we suddenly are I, I think it's some amount of sobriety as we start coming up again in sort of like failure after failure. And I think same for just like in the problem of robustness out of distribution and causality are quite quite related to each other. And I think a lot of the conditions under which we try to ensure robustness correspond to causal stories like we talked about before. But I think you know when we start when people you look at what are people spending billions of dollars on in the machine learning space? One is you know medical decision making. One is um, self-driving cars, right? So so if you're building self-driving cars and you have no assurance that given training on the enormous data they collect through 2019 or something like that, you have no assurance that they're going to not crash in 2020, and that any you know small things like Mazda comes out with a new paint job that your cars are going to start killing people that's you know obviously a problem. So I think we've already sort of, you know, I think I think the reason why they're coming out is because we've already like sort of signed the contracts. Like we've already like hitched our reputations towards delivering these products and and we're discovering a little bit too late that that these other sort of things that are that you know these other competencies are that 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 our machinery doesn't provide are actually necessary to do the things we told people we would deliver for them. I think the real driver is just coming up against nature. Awesome, awesome. Well, Zach, all good things must
0: come to an end. So it goes for 2019, as well as this wonderful conversation, reflecting on 2019. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, share your perspective on these papers and the field in general. Really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam.
0: Awesome, thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on today's guest or for links to any of the materials mentioned, check out TwiMLAI.com slash Rewind19. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review after you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast catcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.